I'm wondering if any of you have made any New Year's resolutions. And I know some of you are at that age where it's kind of like, oh, I've given up. It's been you know, years and years of, uh, of promises made and promises broken. So I'm, but I'm, I'm sure that if I were to ask you, what do you think the top five resolutions that people make in the New Year? You probably know already. But let me give you what I've actually done, found out from research. And so I was l- reading this a global public opinion poll uh, from 2022. And uh, let's talk about the top five. And none of these should be a surprise to you. Number five on the list, 37% of people reported that their resolution was that they wanted to have more time with friends and family. Makes sense, right? Building relationships and improving our relationships. Number four, 39% reported that they wanted to save more money, right? Number three, 40% of people said they want to lose weight. <laughs> I can hear my wife somewhere shouting at me. Okay, anyways, number two, 50% of people said they want to eat healthier. And number one, 52% of people said that they would exercise more and have more fitness in the coming year. Now, none of these five things should be a surprise to you. These are common. Many of you have made similar promises, or at least mentally, maybe not told other people. But what's interesting to me, actually, was when I was reading the research, was that there tends to be a similarity of these top five across the years. In other words, as far back as this poll started measuring in different countries, 2016, very similar, 2017, 18, 19, even during the pandemic, all the way through 2022, the past six years, these have been the top five consistently, just in shuffled order, across the years. Secondly, it also tends to be similar across cultures, which is very interesting to me that it wasn't just American people who had these as their top five, but many nations in Europe as well as in Asia and even in Africa had similar top five resolutions. And so the conclusion was that people generally want to be healthy, happy, sensible adults. Now, The reality was that on average, about 75% of people were successful in keeping their resolution after about a week. That number drops to about 64% after a month, which is still pretty good. After six months, about 46%. And by the end of the year, what do you think it is? It's roughly about 9 to 12% of people have reported keeping their New Year's resolutions. And I'm not sure that, that that's an honest number. I I suspect that some people self-report they were successful uh, more so than they were. And so you can kind of see the success rate in keeping our promises and desires for change. And these are all fine goals. There's nothing wrong with all those goals are are good goals, uh, maybe even necessary if we are trying to fix maybe a self-destructive lifestyle or self-destructive behaviors in us. But the reality is, as we enter into this new year, you and I have limited time, limited energy, limited resources, especially for those of you who are getting older, limited energy. And so what we want to do this morning is to start off our new year with the right priorities, clear on what we're trying to pursue this year, because there's a lot of resolutions you can make, but let's focus in on what God wants us to really focus on this year. And so if you have a Bible, I want you to turn in it to 1 Corinthians chapter 7. We are continuing our series called Clear, where we're learning in a world of confusion and conflict to see our lives through the countercultural lens of the gospel, the good news about Jesus. And if you haven't been with us, this, this is a letter written by the Apostle Paul, written to a church in Corinth to encourage them that instead of being blinded by the values of the world, to see clearly through their identity in Christ, 
that we are loved and forgiven and transformed through His work on a cross, that He guides us and grows us in holiness and unity together. That this is the purpose of this letter, to teach Christians to grow in holiness and unity together, distinct from the world. And then he shows us what that practically looks like by applying it to issues about division within a church, sin, conflict, sexuality. And today what's happening is Paul's continuing his Q&A. He's answering these questions from the Corinthian believers about relationships, specifically uh, issues that relate to their culture, their church, but also ours. And I think that it's going to help us to clarify our priorities, especially as we enter into the new year. And so we're going to pick up in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, actually starting from verse 25. Now, concerning the betrothed, I have no command from the Lord, but I give my judgment as one who by the Lord's mercy is trustworthy. I think that in view of the present distress, it is good for a person to remain as he is. Are you bound to a wife? Do not seek to be free. Are you free from a wife? Do not seek a wife. But if you do marry, you have not sinned, and if a betrothed woman marries, she has not sinned. Yet, those who marry will have worldly troubles, and I would spare you that. This is what I mean, brothers. The appointed time has grown very short. From now on, let those who have wives live as though they had none, and those who mourn as though they were not mourning, and those who rejoice as though they were not rejoicing, and those who buy as though they had no goods, and for those who deal with the world as though they had no dealings with it. For the present form of this world is passing away. Man, that is pretty depressing advice, Apostle Paul. Let's, ta let's take a look at what he's talking about here this morning. So, for those of you who haven't been with us, uh, at the beginning of this chapter, verses 1 through 24, we talked about how Paul was teaching the people there, the, the believers in Corinth, that they find, they're going to find their fulfillment by remaining in God's calling where they are in their lives instead of trying to seek it and fulfill it and wishing that they were married or wishing that they were single because some, some of the believers there uh, were looking to go one direction, some the other direction. And the question that Paul's answering this morning is, well, what if you're in kind of an in-between stage? You're not quite single, you're not quite married, but you're engaged. And so he starts in verses 25 and 26 saying, I don't have any direct command from Jesus about this, but the principle here is the same as what we just talked about, that in the present distress, it is good for a person to remain as he is. In other words, he's trying to tell the believers, following Jesus is already difficult enough in your current struggles, in the present distress. So it's better if you don't add more challenges to your life. And so in verse 27, he clarifies, in case you think he's anti-marriage, if you're committed to, to being engaged, don't break it off. But if you're not, if you're not in a relationship, don't seek one out necessarily. And the reason why, in relation to all the things we talked about in the beginning of the chapter, is that wherever God has already called you, the grass is not necessarily greener on the other side. Because that's the problem when it comes to singleness and marriage. People always think that it's what I have sucks, and what's better over there is better. And the reason why he's talking this way about remaining in what God has called you to is to remind us that the primary purpose in our lives is not about pursuing marriage or singleness, it's about pursuing Jesus. And so in verse 28, he also tells them, if you decide to reject me, Paul's advice, and you end up getting married, you're not sinning, that you're not disobeying God. But you need to recognize, in addition to the burdens that we all carry in this world, 
that there are additional distractions and complications that accompany marriage in how you invest your attention and your devotion towards the comforts and the conflicts that happen as you're building a family and a home together. Okay, sure, Paul. We know that marriage is hard and it's complicated. It's, uh, you know, putting two people's lives together. Of course, there's going to be friction, but so what? Look at verse 29. Here's where he's starting to explain his point here. He says that the appointed time is growing very short. In other words, since Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection, and ascension back to his heavenly Father, the clock is ticking down to his imminent return, the end of history, the fulfillment of eternity. And so we need to be living in light of that reality. He's asking us to reevaluate how are you investing, investing the limited resources of your life, particularly for Jesus. And so his underlying question that he wants to focus on is, in the time that you have, in this life that you have, what are you pursuing? And we know he's not just talking about marriage, because in verses 29 to 31, he addresses all kinds of situations that sound kind of weird, uh, but, but it shows us that he's not just talking about marriage. Now, what I want you to understand in verses 29 to 31 is he's not saying, neglect your marriage and don't work on building your marriage together. Because we saw back in chapter 2, verses 2 through 5, that he talks about marriage as a blessing and a responsibility for those who are in it. He's not saying, don't be sad about pain, don't be happy about blessing, don't have any stuff, don't do any business, because the end is near. That's not what he's saying. He's not suggesting that followers of Jesus have an attitude of apathy or an antagonism towards the world or life around us. But the key to understanding this passage at the end of verse 31 is he says that the present form of this world, that means all the things that we're pouring our energy and our efforts into, all those things are passing away. They're temporary. They are not your ultimate source of life. They are not the grounds for your hope. They're not what defines your identity. It's not your dream job or your dream vacations that say who you are. It's not your spending power. It's not your comforts or the hurts or even the happiness of life. And it's not even marriage. Jesus says in Matthew chapter 22, verse 30, that those things do not last, not even marriage. It only lasts for a lifetime. It does last for a lifetime, but it's not eternal. Therefore, none of these things, we can't be pursuing them as our ultimate purpose, priorities, and goals in this life. So his point here is that in the present world, you still need to work. You still need to eat. You can have stuff and do stuff. You can feel sad and feel glad. You can even enjoy marriage. But these things do not have the last word. Jesus does. And so the question is, am I living in light of his imminent return? That is the question that he's really posing to the believers if, as we read this part of the letter. And so the big idea for this passage this morning is in the light of eternity, our purpose in life isn't pursuing marriage or any other temporary thing, it's pursuing Jesus. That our dignity, our value, and our purpose is not defined by what we have or what we do. It's not defined by our happiest moments or even our saddest moments. It's not fulfilled in being married or single, in dating or in divorce. It's found in Jesus, 
who we are in Christ, what we have in Christ, and particularly in this passage, how we live for Christ. And so I want to start off this morning having you think about how am I investing my life in light of eternity? That in my singleness or in my married state, are there priorities that I'm pursuing in place of Jesus? Things like companionship or career or kids, or maybe for some of you, freedom from any of those three things. Are there priorities that I'm pursuing as a single person or as a married person in place of Jesus instead of finding my fulfillment in Him? Am I willing to come and trust and follow Jesus in whatever situational or relational status that He has called me into? Now, if you're a single person, you should be thinking about, well, does this mean I need to give up my dreams for marriage, that this is just my lot in life? to be hashtag forever alone. Let's read on, verse 32. I want you to be free from anxieties. The unmarried man is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to please the Lord. But the married man is anxious about worldly things, how to please his wife, and his interests are divided. And the unmarried or betrothed woman is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to be holy in body and spirit, But the married woman is anxious about worldly things, how to please her husband. And I say this for your own benefit, not to lay any restraint upon you, but to promote good order and to secure your undivided devotion to the Lord. So in verses 32 to 34, Paul is yearning for the followers of Jesus to be free from anxieties, the kind of anxieties that come through this world. And he says specifically for those who are unmarried, when you have less worry about relational baggage and relational drama, then you have more time and attention and devotion for the things of God. And that the reality is, for those who are married, all that attention and devotion, it's split with also pleasing our spouses. Now, Paul is not saying that that's a bad thing, because one of the things we see throughout the Bible is that marriage, it teaches us to be a little bit less self-centered and a little bit more self-sacrificial. But what Paul is saying is that marriage also imposes demands and responsibilities that you cannot neglect. That once you get married, you need to invest your intentions and your attention, your energy and your efforts towards loving and nurturing and taking care of another person, taking care of a family. And so that's why the Bible tells us in 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 8, if someone doesn't provide for their own family, especially a member of their own household, that they've denied the faith, that they're worse than someone who has no faith. And so we understand that once you get married, there are certain responsibilities that you accept, things that may take up your time and energy and attention and devotion. And this is important for us to recognize because in a culture where marriage is portrayed in the movies and media as the end-all, be-all, that it's easy for us to adopt a skewed perspective, as if if I'm single, then I'm, I fail to achieve this required milestone in life, as if I'm just coping with being single, but it would be better to be married. But what the gospel does is it turns the values of this world upside down. Because you might remember, for those of you who were here last time, that Paul reminded us in verse 8 that it is good In other words, it is noble, it is valuable, it is honorable, it is beneficial to remain single as I, Paul, am. 
that in life, marriage is not the goal or an idol. Singleness is not a curse. And neither of those states are a disease because some of you treat it like it is. Just as marriage is a good gift from God, so is singleness. Now, Paul is not saying you have to stay single. We see in verse 35, he's not placing a restriction on your relational status. He's not telling you, don't get married. Instead, he's, what he's trying to say to us is that there is a goodness, a goal to singleness because it gives us the advantage of a life of undivided devotion to Jesus. It's the opportunity to really focus on pleasing God without the distractions of marriage and with the freedom to wholeheartedly devote our life, our worship, and our service to Jesus, to find our joy and satisfaction in Jesus with an undivided attention. Some of you know who uh, Lucy Swindoll is. She is the middle child of, uh, of uh, three, three, and uh, one of her, her younger brother is prob probably well-known, uh, Chuck Swindoll very famous pastor and preacher. And so growing up, she had two brothers who were, an older brother, younger brother, who were incredibly gifted in many different things and would grow up to be fairly famous people. And so she would tell her dad she was incredibly jealous of her brothers. But like a good dad, he, he took her aside and encouraged her, you know what, you don't have to be like your brothers. He encouraged her to pursue her own dreams. And so at the age of 12, she decided, I'm not going to get married contrary to her mom's very strong uh, southern opinions, conservative opinions about life and marriage. And all of her life, she says, she had never met an adult woman who wasn't married. And that not getting married was never an option. But her dad said to her, honey, I want you to know that you are never alone because God is always with you. And she really took that to heart. And so, the rest of the world wasn't so understanding towards her because in the culture she grew up in the South, there was tremendous pressure in the Southern Christian kind of community uh, for, for you to be married at a fairly young age. And so as others of her peers graduated, they all got married and they started having children at a fairly young age. And her mother, bless her heart, had these domestic dreams for her one and only daughter. And so you can imagine the kind of pressure she felt that she should get married and her, her mom would ask her, what's going to become of you if you end up without a husband? And so at the age of 25, still single, she decided, I'm going to, I need to move out. I need to get away from home. And she spent her life doing things like being a cartographer, a map maker. For 30 years, she got to travel the world. She sang in the Dallas Opera. She launched a movement called Women of Faith with some of her close friends that invited people to just they, this panel of women who would just sit up there and share about their lives and their struggles and the healing love of Christ. And at their first event, they drew 2,000 women to come. The next time, 5,000. And by the time that they had uh, finished off doing these type of events, 20,000 women were attending to hear the gospel and hear about what God is doing in the lives of women. She wrote a book about grace and joyfulness, and singleness, called Wide My World, Narrow My Bed. She talked very honestly about her singleness. And I quote, she said, there was so much pressure for, on me for not being married, especially when I was younger. But an unbreakable fiber grew inside of me with Jesus assuring me, it's okay to be me, to be happy in my own skin. 
And she would later on in life, at the age of 80, reflecting back on a life of singleness, be able to say, when I am with the Lord face to face, I made a choice that it would be my own life that I lay down before him rather than the prefabrication of following a model of marriage for my life. And so I want to challenge you. If you are called or chose or temporarily in a season of singleness, to receive that as a good gift from God. Now, Paul and I are not going to lie to you. There is a real cost to following Jesus. You may remember Luke chapter 9, verses 22 to 24, that Jesus says, if anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and come follow me daily. Some of you are wrestling with letting go of marriage and its benefits and its idolatry, if we're honest, and that may be your cross to bear. But we need to remember that having more of Jesus, being able to serve Jesus more, is better than anyone or everything in this life. Now, some of us also want to remind you that you're choosing singleness maybe for the wrong reasons. Don't choose singleness because marriage seems really hard. You've seen some people, maybe your own parents, who were terrible at it. And so there's some trauma there, and you just want to avoid marriage because of how difficult it seems. Don't choose singleness because you're guarding your autonomy and comforts and your lifestyle of laziness or selfishness. Don't choose singleness because you've been hurt in dating and you're afraid to step up to the plate again. You choose it because we're called to singleness. Singleness is not the gift. Jesus is. Singleness is a calling to cultivate loving and serving Jesus more. And for the rest of you, if you have someone in your life who has boldly embraced singleness because they love Jesus, enjoy Jesus, serving Jesus above all else, then don't undermine them by asking them things like, why are you still single? Maybe it's because you're too picky. Don't you know you're running out of time? Have you been trying? Have you been praying about it? People are not deficient or incomplete without marriage. And people aren't just part of a couple, nor are they waiting to be. Honor that choice. Honor that calling. Honor that cost that someone is trusting and following Jesus and that that may lead to a path of singleness. And if that is your calling in life, Jesus is worth it because there's great value and purpose and reward in this life and in the one to come. Okay, yes, I can see how there is great satisfaction in Jesus and perhaps great satisfaction in singleness. But what about sex? What about loneliness? Those are kind of tough things to overcome. Verse 36. If anyone thinks that he is not behaving properly toward his, towards his betrothed, if his passions are strong, and it has to be, let him do as he wishes. Let them marry. It is no sin. But whoever is firmly established in his heart, being under no necessity, but having his desire under control, and has determined this in his heart to keep her as his betrothed, he'll do well. 
So then, he who marries his betrothed does well, and he who refrains from marriage will do even better. Now, a wife is bound to her husband as long as he lives, but if her husband dies, she is free to be married to whom she wishes, only in the Lord. Yet in my judgment, she is happier if she remains as she is, and I think that I too have the Spirit of God. Now, Paul, these are kind of random subjects. But he's addressing the what-ifs, like, yes, it sounds like singleness can be a great joy and contentment in serving Jesus, and that there's this great satisfaction about it. But he's going to address the issues about, yes, but what if there, I have strong sexual desires, and what if I'm lonely and emotional? And so in verse, per, verse 36, Paul encourages singleness, but he says, if you're engaged and you have a strong sexual desire for your fiancé, and it might become a stumbling block for you, then go ahead and get married. You're not disobeying God in doing that. But remember... Sex and intimacy are not the same thing. That it is possible to have a lot of sex and yet experience no intimacy. That sex is a gift from God to a man and a woman in the bonds and covenant of marriage designed to deepen and express the intimacy that is already there, but it cannot create it in and of itself. And that it's also possible to experience a tremendous amount of godly, healthy intimacy without sex. And that the reality in our world is some of you think that what you really want is sex, but what you're really longing for is intimacy. So in verse 37, Paul says, if you feel convicted and committed to devote your life to Jesus that you made this choice for it, either because you're content in Christ and content in celibacy, or because you have healthy self-control over your desires, then he's saying, you may choose to keep her as your betrothed. I apologize. That is a terrible or inaccurate translation because it's not saying there that if you have self-control and, and you're content in Jesus, that you, can, you should keep her as your fiancé. It's actually saying the opposite. Literally, the, the original language set is saying you, you, should, you can keep her as a virgin. In other words, not get married, not to keep your engagement, but that if you are able to enjoy Christ in your contentment and in celibacy and have good self-control, then you may choose to not get married, and you do very well. And so Paul's point here in verse 38 is that if you keep your engagement to get married, that's good. And if you refrain from getting married, it's even better. Now, you need to hear me very clearly. Not morally better. He's not saying that that's a better choice morally. Remember, this whole chapter, uh, starting, stemming from last time, we saw that he's arguing against that, that not one choice is better than the other, that we're not supposed to pursue one or the other, but instead to find our contentment in Christ in whatever relational status we've been called to. So he's not saying that this is morally better to be single, but he's saying it's practically better that you'll be able to live a life of undistracted, a more devoted love towards Jesus. And so he's talking about if you're able, then you can make this choice. You saw in the passage, he re reiterated a couple of times uh, that if you're able to establish this under, in your heart, under no necessity, but you determine this in your heart, that you've used wisdom to think about and discern, is this the choice that I want to make, but you're not under compulsion to do that. Now, it sounds like he's going to switch gears for, for a second, but I want you to think about it this way. For the Corinthians, it's kind of like, well, what if my desire for marriage, it's not about, it's not physical or sexual, but it's emotional. 
It's because I feel vulnerable. Verse 39, Paul suddenly switches gears to address widows. Because if you know anything about ancient cultures, those who were left widowed were often the poorest and the neediest in society. And there was a lot of pressure for them to remarry because of their burdens, both financially as well as in loneliness. And so Paul reiterates, in marriage, you're bound to a spouse in a covenant before God for a lifetime. And except for, we talked about this last time, during cases when that covenant's been broken by sexual immorality, abuse, or abandonment. But his point here is that if your spouse passes away, you also have full freedom to remarry, emphasizing only in the Lord. In other words, a fellow believer in the family of Christ. And this is very significant for them because you might remember last time in uh, verses 12 through 14 that even if you had married an unbeliever before you met Jesus, which was the case for, that he addressed for people in verses 12 through 14, but now you're single again because your, your spouse passed away, that doesn't give you the excuse to date or marry someone else who is not following Jesus. And we talked about this in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 14, where Paul tells us that God commands us, do not yoke yourself with an unbeliever. But part of Paul's point here is that even if they are a believer, from Paul's perspective in verse 40, as a widow, through, but his conviction and through the wisdom of the Holy Spirit, he says, even if they are a believer, you might be happier. You'll probably be happier if you stay single, if you remain single. And so the point of this passage we see over and over is it kind of gives us a decision tree. Here are all these various scenarios that you might have to deal with. Like you are uh, not quite married, you're not quite single, you're trying to figure out which direction to go. Maybe you're in a married state, you're in a, you're a widowed state. And how do you make these decisions? Well, I have these physical and sexual desires. I have these emotional and vulnerable needs. And so the point here is that we need to discern wisely what is God's calling for marriage or singleness. That God wants you to discern it with him. And here Paul is given very practical spiritual wisdom that even if you're in that space between marriage and singleness, for those who are engaged, for those who are widows, he says, if you have physical or sexual or emotional needs that might be a stumbling block to your faith, then you have freedom to marry. You have freedom to enjoy marriage. Just make sure that that person is genu genuinely loves Jesus, not just somebody who marked Christian on Coffee Meets Bagel or on their Christian Mingle like profile, but they're the type of person that never worships Jesus, never serves Jesus, never talks to him in prayer, that never uh, reads his word, never gives to his work, never gathers with his people as part of a church. Many people claim to follow Jesus the same way they claim that they have a gym membership using it sporadically or not at all. You have freedom to marry if you have any of these needs. But if you're self-controlled and content in Christ, then practically and joyfully, it's better to remain single, to love Jesus, serve Jesus, worship Jesus, because you'll have less drama and you'll have more of Jesus, which is better than anyone or everything in this life. In 17 years of doing ministry here full-time at this church, I've had the great privilege to journey with many of you through all kinds of relational situations. And we've seen how powerful the struggle is for many, physically, your physical desires, your emotional desires, to not get swept up in the currents of the culture's pressure to be married. 
And there's nothing wrong with getting married. Paul makes that very clear, that it is a good calling. There, there is great joy and benefits to that. And that once you enter into that covenant and you're called into that, that we stay in it for a lifetime. But I've also walked with some of you through the heartache of loneliness and loss because you've had to break off relationships with a significant other, whether they were Christian or not, because of issues of sin or hurts or faith. I've also seen the toll that it takes when the needs and the hurts of marriage and family start to take up so much of your time and energy become such an increasing priority in many Christians' lives that we start to drift further and further from our life and our love in Christ. I've seen many married people who had once a fiery passion for the kingdom of God and the gospel and watched that cool into dying embers. Worse I've also seen the greater devastation on followers of Jesus when they're married to someone who's not a, who doesn't love Jesus, thinking that I'm going to change or convert that person when we saw back in verses 15 and 16 that you cannot control if that person will ever come to faith or salvation in Christ. It's not up to you, no matter how smart or how theologically trained you think you are. And for us to consider, how can I possibly share the closest human relationship in this life when I cannot share the most important person and value that I have in this life, in Jesus? It cannot be. That is what we call unequally yoked. And so when, what do I do when there's this uncrossable chasm between our views and our values about morals and about money, about family and about the future, about kids and career? I've seen how much pain how much it wrecks families and marriages. And the truth is, married or single, it, they both come with a cost in order to follow Jesus. And following Jesus in marriage or singleness, it may not make your life easier, but it will always make your life better. And if Jesus proves that, he's worthy of our trust and our sacrifice and our surrender because he gives his own life on a cross to rescue us and redeem us forever. And so like Paul, I want to challenge you to exercise wisdom from the Holy Spirit to live in light of eternity. Paul wants us to be clear about singleness. And this message, <laughs> if you're new here, this is not the right message to have walked in on, huh? Because it sounds like this kind of weird, overly prude religious restrictions on relationships. But this passage isn't really about marriage or about singleness, about being engaged or being a widow. It's about our priorities in this life. Where do we find our real fulfillment? And that it's not found in changing your relational status and ticking it off on social media. That the gospel corrects our skewed perspective about what is our goal and our purpose in this life. And so as we enter into the new year, we don't want to just pursue resolutions that make us happy and healthy. We also want things that we want to be resolved to things that make us holy because that's where genuine spiritual health and happiness are found. That your priority in life is not in pursuing marriage, but about pursuing Jesus. That marriage is good, but Jesus is better. Jesus is a savior, and Jesus is returning to be our ultimate hope and joy and fulfillment forever. And so you can enjoy and serve Jesus in your marriage 
And you will enjoy and serve Jesus even more in singleness. But whatever your relational status, your dignity, your value, your purpose is not being in being married or single. It's found in Jesus. And so I wonder, what resolutions will you make to pursue more of Jesus in this coming year? How do you need to realign the priorities and goals of your life? So I want to invite you to spend a few moments in prayer, even during the next song, talking to Him, discerning, how do I need to follow you, Lord, wherever you call me, relationally or otherwise, that I might live in light of eternity? Heavenly Father, I ask that your Holy Spirit, just as you, in this last verse, gave wisdom and direction to Paul, would give wisdom and direction to us. That what we long for is to know you more and sometimes even to want to want more of you. So we invite you in this holy moment to speak to us. Whether we are single or married, that we might know more of your grace and more of your goodness, but that we might also respond to it by pursuing you more. What would it look like to recognize that the appointed time is growing very short and to live our singleness out in light of Jesus, to live our marriage out in light of Jesus? May we have an increasingly undivided devotion towards him today. May we seek out his goodness in all of our days. So whatever business you need to do, whatever surgery you need to do in our hearts this morning, we bring our priorities and our plans and our pursuits to your altar and ask that you would begin spiritually, surgically realigning us with you. In the name of Jesus.